In Acts chapter 6, we noted the first appointment of deacons. That is recorded in the work of the Lord in the early church. And the reason why such appointments were necessary was due to the material needs which needed to be attended to. The men chosen were to do the work of serving tables as well as the daily administration. And the sense of the word used there, as we looked at, describes really the nature of the deacon's work. It is to be an attendant. It is to be a servant in the work of the Lord. And by having that faithful committee, they are allowing the preaching and the ruling elders to do their work and to carry out their duty. The work then of the deacon is necessary, for without it, and the church and the work of God cannot function right. The books of First and Second Timothy, as well as Titus, they're often termed pastoral epistles. In other words, here were books written by uh, the Apostle Paul, but they were written by uh, two pastors in the Lord's work. The one who wrote these books was the one who preached the word. The one under God who witnessed churches opened right throughout the region uh, to the glory and to the honor of the Lord. But having saw those churches commenced, he didn't just leave them to themselves, but rather he instilled in them the need that they should be run in an orderly and in a proper fashion. The church at Ephesus is a case in point. There's no exception here. It's surely one which Paul had a particular interest in. He was the one who had preached the word in Ephesus, a city that was full of idolatry. He was the one that saw the work of God commence there. He saw souls converted. He saw the souls grow in faith and in maturity in the things of God. And it's no wonder then that years later now, he now instructs his young son in the faith, Timothy, who was the pastor in the church at Ephesus, to see that the church was running smoothly and that the church order was in place. It is a chapter, I refer to chapter 3 in particular, it is a chapter which deals with the requirements of the elder. Those men whom he wants on to state were worthy of double honor. But he also speaks concerning the deacons. And I draw your attention to some of these verses which concern them, some of which we have read about this morning. What sort of men does the church need as, as serving in uh, the committee or as deacons? What sort of deacon? That's really what we want to uh, even consider this morning. Primarily, I'll be basing uh, the message from verse 8 even to verse 12 as we read together, but I will deflect into chapter 2 for a time as well. I want you to notice there, for first of all, their spirituality. And men and women, there is a perception abroad, a false perception. And I want you to get, get this. A false perception that as the office of a deacon is of a lesser standing than the eldership, then it follows that the men appointed don't need to be spiritual. And that's a false perception. Others will go as far to say that it's not really an important position. Well, I trust that we have already shown from Acts chapter 6 that it is far off the mark. 
in that no work of the Lord could be considered as unimportant, but so as to impress the spiritual character of such men that would hold this office. Paul, and having spoken about the potential eldership, he then states in verse 8, likewise. That's how he leads into the verses about the deacons. That's the first word he uses, likewise. In other words, what I've just spoken, what I've just stated concerning the bishop or the elder, likewise also applies to the deacon. When it comes to the finer points of the man's character being broken down as this passage does for us, then it can be seen it's almost identical with what he has said about the eldership. And so what you have in these verses and what the Lord desires for his church is that spiritual men are in the office, whether it is to carry out the spiritual matters or whether it is to carry out the material aspects and nature of the work of God. What are these spiritual matters that we're looking for? That the Lord gives, of course, and which are to be seen. The deacon will be known, first of all, for his sincerity. Verse 8, look at it. Likewise, must the deacons be grave? He'll be a grave man. In other words, he'll take seriously the work that has been laid to his charge. It speaks of the character that inspires confidence and respect. And in the context of the church in Ephesus, one who was not caught up with the pleasure crazes of the city. You will come across that, of course, when you read the book of Acts and the inception of the work there and the Apostle Paul and he went to this city and what he saw and so forth and how the church was formed in that place. It was a city given over to sin, as many cities are. And it was a city that was taken up with the pleasure crazes of that day. But one who lived in the higher and in the purer atmosphere, whose affections were set in heavenly things, that's the sort of man that was spoken about here in this first word of being grave. Now, what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that a deacon, or for that matter, any believer in the house of God or in the church of God, it doesn't mean that, that you're not allowed to laugh. It doesn't, it doesn't give the sense of, of going about with always a stern and a serious frown on your face. From where I come from, not up too far up the road, you used to talk about a lurgan spade. You've heard about that, haven't you? A lurgan spade is a big long thing for, for, for digging the turf. And there's people going around, you think that face is for a lurgan spade. Uh, but that's not the sense of it at all. The Christian life is a happy life. Now, of course, we have our, 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 our trials. We have our troubles and all of that. We're not demising those things. But it's a happy life. We've been redeemed out of the slave market of sin. We'll never be in the eternal flames of hell. We have an inheritance that is incorruptible, eternal, and never passeth away, reserved for us in heaven, in that, new, newly, uh, in that heavenly Jerusalem. With all those blessings, and men and women, our lives ought to reflect the happiness that we have in Christ. One fruit of the Spirit is joy. We should have the joy of the Lord about us, even through the difficult times. So that's not what grave means. But what the word does mean is that there's a serious mindedness about the work of God. The work is carried out in that spirit. It's the very opposite spirit to what you hear about today, I sure it'll do rightly. 
That sort of attitude that is prevalent in many workplaces today, that's the very opposite of what is desired in the work of God. Then his spirituality will be evident, verse 8, in his speech. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, we noted last time that the prospective deacons were to have an honest report. And one who is known to be double-tongued obviously could not be considered as such. The term literally means what it says. It's saying the same thing twice. It's telling one person one thing while giving a different view to someone else and that with the intention of deception. And so dangerous is the smallest member that we have that God has housed it in our mouth. And he's given nearly an entire chapter over to it. You turn over to James chapter 3, you will see what I mean. James chapter 3. And here is a chapter that warns about the smallest member. You look at the words of verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, stop and think of this. We put bits into the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. He used the example of the horse, the bridle and the bit in the horse's mouth. He used the example of a small rudder and a big ship. Verse 5, Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. It's just a little member in comparison to the size of your legs or the size of your arms or whatever you want to mention. But God has put that little member in your mouth, behind your teeth. It's housed in there because it's a dangerous member. And even that is brought out and the possibility of its double work. We have the word that we're looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You look at the words of verse 8 of James 3. But the tongue can no man tame. We can tame the beasts and the serpents and all the rest of it that he mentions in the previous verse. The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing. My brethren... These things ought not so to be. There's the double nature of the tongue, you see. In one moment it can bless God, the next moment it can be cursing man. A man who is loose with his speech is one who is double-tongued. And Paul says, ought not to be considered for such an office. Understand that this is not what becomes of a child of God. Never name, never mind one for the position of deacon in the work of God. The opposite of being double-tongued is saying what we mean and of making a promise then striving by God's grace to keep that promise, to see it carried through. It is to have that speech which may minister grace unto the hearers. Our church needs men who will keep their tongue. That's something for every member of the congregation but especially for those in office. None more so because we deal with business meetings where confidentiality is stressed. 
and underlined. They're sensitive matters at times. They can't be talked about. Then likewise, the deacon will show spirituality in their social life. That particularly has to do with their morality and with money. They're not, you'll notice verse 8, given to much wine nor greedy of filthy lucre. The context of the Eastern setting, of course, is very much in view here. The water in those days was not good. How Paul encouraged Timothy later on and the epistle to no longer take the water but a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. The boys that go to the booze, they forget to finish the verse, of course. They forget about the start of the verse. Take it out of context. But that's the context of the water in the eastern setting. Even in other lands, I was, you know I'm only back from Nepal. You can't even clean your teeth with the water over there. You use bottled water. And here's a young man with a weak constitution. And the water of that day, as to this day, was not good. But even though wine was permitted in those circumstances for medicinal purposes, the elder nor the deacon were to be given over to it. A man's morality is affected if he's found at the booze, if he's found at the drink, the strong drink of the wine. And coupled with that, a man with ambitions around wealth was never suitable for such an office either. Not nor greedy of filthy lucre. It stands to reason that those who occupy such an office will need to be trusted around money. For part of their work is the, to be good stewards of the Lord's money. The remit of the committee has a large part to do with the finances and how it is spent, etc. It behoves no deacon to have that Judas-like character. Remember Judas, he complained about the costly ointment being poured out upon the Savior's feet. And yet for 30 pieces of silver, he was to betray the Lord into the hands of the soldiers. And he lost his own soul. He's never saved. Went to his own place. He was a man who even was trusted with the treasury. Yet he was a man who had the filthy looker in his heart. Men and women, these are there for some of the spiritual qualities that are desired in the deacon's life and character. It's just laid out for us. The Lord hasn't left us in ignorance. What about their support? Well, those fit for this office will already be known to be serving the Lord. In Acts chapter 6, we've seen that, that they were already there. It's important that when considering prospective deacons to realize it's not the case that because a man's voted into office then he will have those qualities necessary. Those qualities will already be seen. That man will already have displayed what it takes. He will already be serving the Lord. He will already have displayed that zeal, that Serious mindedness for the work of God, that unselfish character. He already have been recognized by the congregation who is one who has the character and the qualities needed for such an office. A man who's given to prayer. A man who has a consistent walk, who when welcoming people at the door will be genuine and glad to see them no matter who they are. I want to tell you that's the first impression. I wasn't brought up in the free church. But the first time I came into it, there's a wee man at the door. He couldn't have stood behind a pulpit and preached. But you know, he's the best man at the door. For he's a warm welcome. 
No matter who you were. And there's always a glad word to see. And you come back. He was glad to see you back again. And that's the first impression that strangers see. It's not when you get into the church building. It's even the man at the door. Just a menial task, you might say. But how important. For ultimately, the man at the door will have a heart for the furtherance of the gospel. And he'll have a a heart for the cause of Christ in this part of the vineyard. A man who will support the church in whatever way he can. He'll be in the meetings. He'll be here morning and he'll be here evening time. With very few exceptions. He'll be doing those menial tasks, but he'll gladly do them for the love of Christ constrains him. It means having the grass cut. It means having the fences painted and all the rest. It's just a menial task, but we'll do it because the love of Christ constrains us. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says, holding the mystery of the faith and the pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Those verses impress upon us the men to be considered are truly saved. They possess the mystery of the faith. The men who have con- whose conscience is pure and they're at peace before God. And what's more, the Lord warns against those who would be a novice. They Character of the seven that were chosen in the Acts of the Apostles implies that they were no novices in the faith. That's a term that speaks of how well a man is growing, how well a man is maturing in the Lord and in his faith. The men set apart in the church at Ephesus as deacons were to be strong in the faith. But also men who had already proved themselves to be worthy and capable of holding such an office. And men and women, I want you to understand that today we're not Ephesus, but there's the evils that prevail in our town. There's the things that we have to stand against, we have to contend earnestly for, for the faith once delivered for the saints right here in this part of the vineyard. But note verse 11. For I believe we have something of the support not given here. The support that the man will give to the church we've, we've briefly considered. But that which the potential deacon will need to have. And the support comes from his family and from his wife if he has one. Verse 11 says, Even so must their wives be grave, not slander, sober, faithful in all things. There are those who interpret those words as meaning that women can be considered for such an office. And therefore the cry is, let there be deaconesses. Well, the members, the members know when they come to the, the said meeting just in a couple of weeks' time, there'll not be any woman's name on the voting list. That's where the Presbyterian Church goes wrong, for the women's names are already on the voting list. And the Methodists and all the rest of them as well. But there's no such thing ever found in the New Testament church. Phoebe was a servant of the Lord. In Romans chapter 16, you'll read about her. She is one who did a great work, but nowhere does it state that she held office. And that's why I took the time to read chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. 
And you look at the words of verse 12 and 13, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And the illustration that Paul uses here in this context is from creation. Man was created first, and then woman as his complement. I was preaching at that wedding the other day and I said, bringing them back there to the uh, creation of woman, that woman was created as a complement, not as a competitor. In the world today, women want to get into competing against men. And there's a whole thrust and there's a whole drive behind that. But men and women, look at it. This divine subordination of women to men existed from the beginning. It didn't exist because sin entered into the world and therefore it was reversed by redemption. It existed from the creation. It existed from the beginning for it says that Adam was first formed, then Eve. A woman is not to have a position that is in dominion over the man. There are di- these are divinely limited to the eldership which are to be men. That's God's order. It's not the order of the free church or, or any other independent works. This is God's order. But while they're not to hold office, and I think and I believe that is abundantly clear there. And I've under, uh, underlined to you what it means when it says that the women learn, learn in silence but with all subjection. It doesn't mean they have to be silent. That'd be a good one. You get a woman who's not silent. Uh, that's silent, but that's not what that means. They're to learn uh, from the teaching elder in the church. There's that subjection. But listen to me, while they're not to hold office, the women and the wives are to be supportive. And especially where it concerns husbands who are either the eldership or the deacons. They're to be supportive in the work. They too will be known for their sincerity. I often think how much it must be difficult for a man who does not have a wife that is supportive of them as he does the work of God. The wife, you know, is often forgotten about. And wrongly so, where the minister is concerned, or the elders are concerned. The minister's not always at the house. The elders are pulled here and there to other meetings as well, and the wife has to make those sacrifices. And oftentimes a woman is forgotten about. But the women will be supportive of their husband. Paul intimates here that they'll be supportive in the work. They will have a similar heart for the labors of the Lord as their husbands do. And their support will be visible in the meetings. And their support will be in the prayer meetings of the church as they're praying for their, for their husband in the oversight of the work and in the furtherance of the gospel. And then they'll be supportive in their words. Verse 11, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Here's a second reference in just a few verses to the tongue again. And to words that are spoken. 
You might be interested to know this word in particular in verse 11. It carries great weight. It's the same word that is used for the devil in the New Testament. The word is diabolus. And you might say to me, oh, how, how's that fit in? Is the de- deacon married to a devil? No, no. I'll tell you how it fits in. You turn over to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And it speaks about the devil. And it says in verse 9, the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. You see, men and women, there's the work of the devil. He's an accuser. That's the sort that he's worked at. That's the sort of business that he's in. He accuses the child of God day and night. And so a woman, or for that matter, any of God's people who goes about carrying stories to cause mischief, who might be known as one who's a slanderer, a slander of other people. I might even use social media platforms these days to do so. And people don't realize that what they stick on the platform, they can't get it off again. It's there. So we warning to the young people. And maybe there's people that will use those sort of platforms to do it and slander other believers. Listen, you're only doing the work of the devil. That's what it means. Because it's the same word that's used. You're just doing the same accusing work with your tongue. Make no mistake about it. The sort of wife will not be supportive, but in effect she'll be a hindrance. She'll be a destruction, a destructive nature in the work that her husband as a deacon is seeking to do. But the deacon's wife will be supportive of him. And they'll be supportive in her willingness. You see, the end of this verse states that she would be one who would be trusted and relied upon. She'd be characterized by these words, faithful in all things. What a testimony. What a testimony to have. There's a wife who's faithful in all things. You can think of Hannah this morning. And Hannah, as we find her in 1 Samuel 1, she was a woman who poured out her heart to the Lord. She was a woman who knew how to pray. Ladies, don't be silent in the prayer meetings. Scriptures are full of women praying. Hannah knew how to pray. And she laid hold upon God and she knew it was a woman who wasn't afraid of the tears and the yearning for a son. She's a woman who wasn't found at the wine, but at the quietness of her heart. She was in touch with God. Eli, Eli got it wrong. 
First Samuel chapter 1 verse 15. Nan Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hereto. She, is a, she was a woman who was faithful. Or what about the Shunammite woman? First, Second Kings chapter 4, you'll find her. She's one we're introduced to in the times of Elisha, the prophet of the Lord. Do you know what is said of her? Verse 8 of that chapter, it simply says this. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. And you might say, well, there's nothing startling about that verse. Oh, I beg to differ. We read of the widow of Zarephath at an earlier time, and how she looked after Elijah in the time of drought, of, of drought and of famine. She's worthy of note. But the Holy Ghost says of this Shunammite woman, she was a great woman. That word great is not found against the widow of Zarephath. It's found about this woman. She was a great woman. What support she was to God's servant as she set aside a little chamber in her house for him when he needed it, when he passed that way. A bed to rest in, a little table and a stool to eat and to study at, a candlestick to give the light that was needed to doing those things. A good committee man, listen to me, will have good support from his wife and family. And he will support the work because of that. Or on the back of that, he'll be able to give it all to what the task at hand is. Their support. What about their suitability? The suitableness will already be seen. From where he will have showed the greatest evidence of that. And that's in the home. You see verse 12. Let the diggings be the husbands of one wife. Ruling their children and their own houses well. He'll be suitable because of his faithfulness to his wife. No blame morally can be placed against him. Remember in such a day where it was prevalent to have more than one wife in the city of Ephesus. Paul reminds Timothy that it wasn't a suitable testimony for those who would see to the smooth running of the church of God. He was to be the husband of one wife. Again, words which also show the impossibility it is to consider a woman for such a position. A man who's not faithful and wise where his morality is concerned is not going to be faithful where the work of the bride of Christ is concerned. And the bride of Christ is the church. Unless we think that these words are only for Paul's day of polygamy, I don't need to remind ourselves that we too live in a polluted and an immoral age where the desire of the devil is to ruin the testimony of God's people and especially through those who hold office in the church. He's about the business of wrecking Christian marriages and Christian homes by the immoral relationships. 
And by doing so, untold damage has been done to the work of God. You know what we have today, men and women? We find it in some of our churches here, but more so in the mainland. And it's this. It's only the women and the children that are found in church. There's the absentee husbands. They're not to be there. And you roll that on in your thinking. And that means, of course, that's the sad reality that little to no men are in the membership. And they're not in the membership. They're not eligible to be elected to govern the church. That's the work of the devil. How much saying we need good men and we need a church who will pray for them. And pray for our families. Our Christian homes. Those suitable will have proved themselves by their authority in the home. You know the picture there in verse 12 is of a happy home. It's not regimental. It's a home where there's rule and control and authority is administered as God meant it to be. The home where the word of God will be taught like Abram of old. And God knew Abram. And God knew that he would teach his children the right and the wrong. He would teach them the judgments and statutes of God. He gathered his servants around him and he catechized them. For a man who bears good rule and authority within his own home, who shows much wisdom, will be suitable when it comes to those things concerning the church and the family of God's people. His suitability will be seen in that although he rules in the house, yet his wife and children respect him for doing so. Ruling their children and their own houses well. If he gains respect from his wife and children, then by God's grace, when he brings that family into the congregation, he'll also have the respect of those believers around him. And that's really what your family is, man and woman, today. You have a little church there. And you worship in the home throughout the week. And you open the Word. And maybe even sing some of the, the, the good hymns or whatever. And then on the Sunday day, on, on the Sabbath day, you're bringing that little church and you're bringing it into the congregational setting of the larger church body. And we're exhorted, of course, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And if you have respect in your home and the things of the Lord there, then as you bring your little family or older family, whatever the case might be, into the house of God, you'll gain the respect of all their believers around you. May God be pleased to give us such men. And by the way, that doesn't imply on my part that we haven't already got such men in committee. But it's good for them to go over these things as well of what is required and on all our hearts of what we should be seen to be and what we are before the public gaze of the world. Happy you're without Christ this morning. Happy you're not saved. I commend to you not merely an oversight, but I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, because he's the sole head and king of the church. Not the preacher. Not even the eldership, but it's Christ. 
He's the head and king of the church, for it is he who is faithful, faithful in laying down his life, so that you might be born again, you might be saved. His work is all sufficient. It is he that is all authority. He's all authority in heaven and on earth. He holds the keys of hell and of, of death. You ought to fear him. He can destroy both body and soul in hell. I wonder this morning, would you not give him that response that he is worthy of? The psalmist sums it up in Psalm 116. In verse 12, it says this, What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. When will you do that? Will you take by faith the cup of salvation? He emptied that cup of God's wrath and judgment at Calvary. He drunk it dry, even the very last dregs, that you might never have to. And in the gospel, he freely offers you the cup of salvation that you might call upon the name of the Lord in mercy to save you today. I trust and pray that if there's one, that you might acknowledge him as Lord and save you this morning. And you'll know him who is the head and the king of his church. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts even this morning afresh for his own name's sake.